welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Pastor Tim, as we did with sexual orientation, we will now um, consider in regards to gender identity, and that is what the peer-reviewed literature says about these, these, uh, these matters. Let me just very quickly review why I think it's worthwhile to, um, to have some idea of what the peer-reviewed literature says. Um, First of all, I think it's a way of glorifying God because you see how it is that God's good laws, design are seen, in, especially in the way we've been looking at it. Uh, it's seen in contrast to where things go wrong and how the world tries to fix problems. And, and, um, but you really see the, the wonder, the beauty, the goodness of how God has created um, in that. Uh, but I also think it's useful from an, an apologetic perspective that we see, we know that all of truth is God's truth. Uh, and so when you do science, you can do science from a Christian perspective. You can, uh, in fact, you are always doing science from some sort of perspective. Uh, you, can, you cannot escape the presuppositional. Uh, and so when you, you know, when you do science and when you see the results of the empirical, um, it, you can use that apologetically in the world and to try to convince and persuade. It's never wrong to say, thus saith the Lord, but there may be places and times where it may be more helpful, useful, winsome to, uh, to also have some empirical answers for, for our world. Um, we are going to be focusing on, um, on three reasons that the transgender trend 
of medically transitioning transgender people, why that is dangerous and not evidence-based. Um, there are other things that could be said from a peer-reviewed or medical perspective uh, on gender identity, but this is one of the big issues that we face in these days, a very recent issue and problem in which even children, even young children, are being medically transitioned in the name of progress, in the name of help. Um, so let me give you a, a little bit of an idea of what that looks like in our society currently. As young as three years of age, parents are socially transitioning their children. All right? So what does, that, what does that involve, social transition? Well, it, um, it may involve a new name that fits with a, uh, you know, a chosen gender. It may mean dressing as the opposite sex or dressing in a, in a non-binary way, a deliberately non-binary way, instead of leaning into and celebrating your gender, whatever that would look like. Of course, culture plays a role in that, but um, instead going against that. And then if you've got pronouns as well playing a role in that. Um, so social transition. <clears throat> We're going to see in what is shared that even social transition is a very dangerous thing and that it really provides the, the conveyor belt, uh, fast-moving conveyor belt towards medical transition. And, um, but you know, if, you're if we're coming at things even from the perspective that we built in a creational design in our last lecture, we would already be able to say, no, that's, that's not good, that's not healthy, that's not being thankful, obedient, joyful when it comes to how God has created you. As early as nine years of age, you have puberty suppression. Okay? I'm going to talk about four stages here. The first one was social transition. The second one here now is puberty suppression. This is happening as young as nine years of age. Um, they use a um, what is called an agonist, uh, Lupron. Uh, it is made by the pharmaceutical company AbbVie. Uh, used to be called Abbott Pharmaceuticals, now called AbbVie. And it is used off-label to suppress the normal pubertal, pubertal development of those as young as nine years of age. Um, it's important to note that it's used off-label. What that means is that there is no governing body that has ever put their stamp of approval on the use of, um, of these, these drugs or these treatments for that purpose. Uh, it is used, what it is used for, and the, the stamp of approval is on what is called precocious puberty. So it, um, when, if somebody would enter into puberty, you know, in some cases two or three years before kind of no, a normal process, uh, it can sometimes be helpful to put that off, to try to put that off for a little while. Um, although uh, Lupron, even in those cases, has been shown to have bad effects on things like um, bone development. And so there are currently uh, some court cases going on um, by people that have you know, taken Lupron for 
precocious puberty and have had um, later on extremely brittle bones because of that. Um, it also uh, affects brain development. The brain develops significantly in, through the adolescent years and, and early, early adolescence and in fact doesn't stop um, developing until uh, mid-20s. Mid Some people will even push that out into the late 30s. But this is, uh, this is, by this we don't just mean a growth in knowledge um, that never stops. Neural pathways are constantly being built throughout the life. But more specifically, like there's, there's, there's physical growth uh, in the brain itself, which uh, of course is reflected in things like IQ. Uh, the third stage in what I'm calling this transition conveyor belt is the administration of cross-sex hormones, which are happening uh, as young as, I believe, 11 years old at this point, but at least 12 years old. Um, and so in this case, uh, women, girls are, are going on testosterone and boys on estrogen. Uh, this wreaks havoc with the body. There are all sorts of horror stories out there. Um, that aren't that aren't the case for for every single person that takes these, but uh, but you start messing with the body and how it was designed. It, there there can be some very horrendous side effects. Uh, at this point, changes are absolutely permanent in regards to, um, for instance, if you're on estrogen, development of uh, breast tissue. For uh, girls that are taking testosterone, the lowering of the voice, uh, and they are they are permanently sterilizing as long as you are taking them. They they also may sterilize in regards to long term effects, um, but so it'll it'll have a significant detriment for many on fertility. Uh, although in some cases there are people that can stop being on them and then uh, still have children. But what is, if that wasn't horrific enough, um, what is important to note about this is that there are no long-term studies and data on the effects of these cross-sex hormones, none. They are experimental. We have no idea what it looks like for a body that goes on cross-sex hormones, say for instance, we won't, we won't even choose the youngest age, let's say 13 years of age. We have no idea what it looks like for a body to be on cross-sex hormones for 40 or 50 years. We, we just don't know. Um, and then at as young as 13 years of age, and there are, this is, it's so sad that this is disputed. There are all sorts of trans advocates and people that, yeah, that are advocating for this who will say things like, no one is getting, you know, permanent surgeries before 18 years of age. That is so uh, incredibly wrong. Uh, very easy to prove as well because uh, you don't even have to point to people's stories. Although now, actually, even over this last year, you do have people coming forward that are sharing their experience that are dis desisting, uh, detransitioning. Uh, in some cases, many of them did have surgeries very young. But there's actually studies that have, you can see the ages in the studies where they've, they've done, for instance, um, mastectomy, the removal of breasts at 13 years of age. Um, so here you have the permanent removal of healthy body parts, and um, there, this is permanent. You can you can do some surgeries, but you are never getting back function uh, of those of those body parts again. So this is this is one of the 
Uh, it, it, is a, it is a current issue. Uh, I think it's one of the biggest injustices that are taking place in our world currently. Uh, interestingly, because of some of the, the reasons, I'm going to get into three reasons here now, because of the three reasons that I'm going to mention, uh, in some places in the world, they have stopped doing medical transition of minors at this point. Uh, in some cases, they used to, and they, now they won't anymore. In some cases, they're slowly clawing back. Unfortunately, here in North America, we're still going full bore ahead, even as places like uh, many places in Europe and even in the UK, they're starting to, to move back and realize, okay, no, this is um, what is taking, you know, what is taking place here now is, is not backed by the, by the science. Uh, unfortunately, that has not arrived yet here in North America. So the first reason that this is so, um, this doesn't fit with what the peer-reviewed literature says, is that gender dysphoria goes away in adolescence. Uh, this is a generalization, but we'll see that it's a very strong generalization. It is what is called in the literature desistance. Desistance. Uh, the opposite of desistance is persistence. So this, what has, for, the, for a long time until very recently, what has been seen as a mental illness in some way, this gender dysphoria, um, does it continue or does it go away especially in adolescence. And the answer to that is that all of the literature um, on this topic, all of the studies that have been done, unequivocally show that it goes away in adolescence in the vast majority of cases. So Steensma in 2011, he's one of the leaders um, on this in a study called Desisting and Persisting. He says this, this is a quote, although the persistence rates differed between the various studies, 2% to 27%, the results unequivocally showed that the gender dysphoria remitted, that means it went away, after puberty in the vast majority of children. So if you have ever read medical literature before, uh, you may know that you, if you use a word like unequivocal, um, if you can't back that statement up, you will have ruined your entire um, life as a, you know, as a researcher. You, you cannot say something is unequivocal unless it's unequivocal. You can't say every single study has found this thing unless every single study has found that thing. That, that word is very precise. So there's about 13 studies that have been done. I have, um, I've read all of them except for one that was, I think, done in the 60s that is very hard to get your hands on. Um, and they, they all show the same thing. I have a YouTube video that goes through every single one, and, and um, you can see the, the percentages of, in, which in some cases, male and female, of how that breaks out and the persistence or desistance of those. But essentially, what Steensma says is true, that um, the vast majority of cases, and a good number to use, it's really, really safe. It could, very, it could be a, above this but um, is, is at least 80%. In fact, well here, I'll do one better than that. Um, Steensma actually tabulated the number uh, and he uses the number 84%, I believe, 84%. I actually don't have that number on me, but I'm pretty sure it's, that's the number uh, that he comes up with as he sort of tabulates all of the studies. 84% um, goes away. Now, one of the things that's interesting before we move on to our second point here is that um, 
there is a study, and only one, um, and because of where we're at right now, culturally with this issue, there will, some of these studies will never be replicated because they view it as unethical to try to do studies like this anymore. Um, but in Steensma 2013, it's the only study that had social transition as a variable. So in other words, what that meant, what that means is does, so this variable asks the question that if this child takes on the pronouns or is uh, wearing the, um, the garments of you know, the opposite sex, does that affect whether the gender dysphoria goes away in adolescence or not? Does that, does that prove to be uh, a variable? Um, does it prove to have an effect? And the answer is yes. 74% of those who had not socially transitioned desisted in their gender dysphoria. Only 35% of those who had any social transition desisted. I mean, huge disparity. So in other words, uh, this is, so let me bring this to a point of counsel here. Um, gender dysphoria is a real thing. And there are parents that are asking the question, what do I do with a child, uh, or maybe a young teenager that seems to be gender dysphoric, um, you know, wants to present as the opposite sex. And, and what I would say is, don't just fight the battle at the level of medical transition. You need to fight it earlier. You need to fight it earlier because that, uh, that social transition uh, moves them from a category where they're very unlikely to continue to have gender dysphoria in adulthood to a category where they are far more likely to, um, to continue to have that and then to go through with that medical transition. So, so sobering to realize that even though the studies are all say the same thing, that still we are in the place where we are doing permanent medicalization, sterilization, and in some cases, mutilation. I, I use that word soberly. I don't like to be sensational, but that is what's going on. Um, all these things would go away, really, a, a huge amount of them. If the only thing you did, and we should be doing more than this, but if the only thing you did is you said to minors, wait, wait, wait until you grow up, you know what, if you have a better idea of what it is that actually means to be a man or a woman, you've gone through the puberal process, that normal developmental stage. Um, the second reason why this current trend is dangerous and not evidence-based is that the long-term outcomes are exceptionally poor. The long-term outcomes are exceptionally poor. Now, there are, I will tell you that there are some studies out there that would seem to show that transition helps those um, who are gender dysphoric. Uh, the problem is this, though, that because of the newness of the studies um, and, uh, and for a host of other reasons, we actually don't have very high quality data on this question. Um, one of the areas in which we really lack data is this issue of, uh, oh, I'll mention two. One is the issue of uh, long-term versus short-term. Right? So we don't have nearly as many studies over 10 years in length as we do uh, under, say, five years. There, and there's a few in the five to 10 year range. Uh, but when it get, comes to long-term studies over 10 years, we have, we have very few. The number gets really small. Um, and, that, and that's a problem. That's a problem. 
The other problem, and perhaps even more serious, is the fact that in most of these studies, there is tremendous loss to follow up. Loss to follow up. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you are doing a, some kind of treatment, especially one that is as severe as this, uh, if you, you, know, you want to know whether this treatment is successful on 100 people and you're going you know, to test them at, at the point you know, before they receive the treatment and then say 10 years after they receive the treatment, you want to find the same 100 people. It does not do to find 90 or 80 or 50. And yet, that is exactly what you find in the peer-reviewed literature on this issue. You find there is tremendous loss to follow-up rates where it is uh, very exceptional to have anything approaching, um, like say for instance, 80% follow-up. Uh, you will often have 60% follow-up. In some cases, 50% follow-up. And uh, in other fields, uh, I've, I've, yeah, there's a, I, I, the name of the, the, the article escapes me, but in other fields, it's well recognized that anything beyond or anything less than 20% loss to follow-up, you may as well throw it. Like, it it's completely useless. And in fact, uh, even 20% is puts significant significantly undermines your data. And this especially is the case when you factor, into the, uh, factor in the, the fact, again, well-replicated you know, idea that those who are not followed up are more likely to have troubles with the treatment than those who follow up. All right? So if you are receiving, if you, are, if you have problems with the treatment, studies have shown that you are less likely when the phone rings and the clinic wants to talk to you you're less likely to go, yeah, okay, I'll come in and, and, and talk about the treatment. Um, so this, this is a big problem. There are three studies that have largely avoided these issues that are long-term and because in the areas, the countries in which these studies were done, they keep very close tabs on, um, on basic information of, of all the treatments that go on. And you could argue, well, that's good or bad, this kind of level of could call it surveillance, but makes for effective studies. Um, I'm going to quickly mention them. Um, one of them was by Asheman in 2011 in the Netherlands. This was a very large group of uh, those who were treated with cross-sex hormones. So in some cases, they had also uh, undergone surgery. In some cases, just cross-sex hormones. The follow-up rate was over 18 years, a very long follow-up rate. And I'm going to quote from the study. The increased mortality risk in their male to females, which was the, the majority of, the, of those studied, uh, was characterized by a high standard mortality rate of suicide of 5.7 times, of AIDS 30 times, and of illicit drug-related deaths of 13 times. What does that mean? It means that as they compared male to females in their study, against uh, the population, the you know, normative population, that, uh, that they were almost six times as likely to die of suicide after um, treatment. They were 30 times more likely to get AIDS. They were 13 more times more likely to die of uh, a drug-related death. Uh, let's move to a second study done by Dejne. D-H-E-J-N-E, -E, in Sweden, also the same year, 2011. 
This took a look at those who had gotten surgery. So it was a, it's a somewhat smaller group, but still one of the largest groups that has been studied. Average follow-up was over 10 years. Uh, in this case, they were actually able to compare to controls rather than just to the population, which is helpful because what that means then is that you can compare somebody that maybe has a history of mental illness with somebody else that has a history of mental illness, right? Or depression, depression. You can, you can kind of compare like for like. Uh, and what they found, what Desjardins found, is that death by suicide was 19 times higher than in controls after transition. All right. Now, they're not they weren't comparing them before transition to after transition. They're comparing them after transition to other controls. Okay. Um, but 19 times higher than controls. So, and again, they're comparing like to like. They're comparing, for instance, depressed people with depressed people. 19 times higher to die by suicide. Uh, let me mention one other study. Um, a small, well, it wasn't a small study, a smaller study, but one of the best designs that had ever been done. Uh, Simonson in 2016, this was in Denmark. Again, the average follow-up rate was, after, was more than 10 years. And what he found, I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you, but he found um, in this study, he was able to compare the same group before transition and after transition. Okay? One of the only times this has ever been done. And he found that their level of psychiatric morbidity, so the amount of psychiatric troubles that, they, that, would, you know, that would have a diagnosis, was, was unchanged. It, treatment didn't help. Unchanged. Um, there was no significant difference. So here you're doing a treatment that involves medicalization, sterilization, lifelong medicalization, sterilization, and mutilation, and no difference, no difference. Um, so the long-term outcomes are very poor. This is how I, um, I framed the issue, kind of summarized the issue in an article that I wrote for the public discourse. I, uh, I stated it this way, that the best studies show the worst outcomes. Okay, what that means is that as you lean into the studies with the best methodology, as you compare those to the other studies, they show by far the worst outcomes. And that's probably stating it charitably. Um, they do not show good outcomes. Um, there's one, see, I'm, how much time do I have? I'm going to tell you one, but one more study. It's Linquist. Uh, and Linquist was done in, I believe, 2016. Uh, I'm just going to pull that up so I can make sure I can get that right. But uh, Linquist, and in this study, it's probably one of the studies that's one of the worst examples of bias I've ever seen in my life. Um, it's uh, moving from the tables, the actual data, to how they summarize it is, is, is really brutal. Um, but essentially what it shows, there, it's one of the only studies done, it was, it was a five-year longitudinal study. They, they did a study at uh, prior to transition, um, one year after, three years after, five years after. And what, even though there was lost a follow-up rate throughout that, which um, I can almost guarantee you, um, if they hadn't had that lost follow-up, it would have actually, even, the results would have been worse than, than what they were. What it showed is that there was some improvement after one year, okay? So there's a bump up in quality of life in their different, different ways they measure quality of, quality of life. 
And then at three years, it begins to go down. And then at five years, except for in one um, measurement, they were all lower than before transition. All right? Before transition. And so, uh, except for this honeymoon period uh, of kind of the year afterwards, what you had is a, is a very, well, I think quite a quick degradation in quality of life for these individuals. Let's deal with the last reason here, and that is that gender dysphoria and gender nonconformity are socially contagious. They're socially contagious. Um, there has been, in the UK, where they t keep careful tabs on these things, um, there was a, and things have changed now because UK has started to claw back what they're doing because of some scandals, rightly, rightly so. But there was a 20-fold increase, 20-fold increase in the amount of children presenting at gender clinics with gender dysphoria, gender nonconformity, the vast majority of who would have, been gone, would have gone on to medicalization, all right, some sort of medical transition. Now, what is interesting, and I can't show you uh, the chart right now, but what is interesting, if you were to see the chart, I'll try to describe it, is that you see sort of a slow rise, and then you see this this hockey stick effect, where you have what is close to, not a linear, but almost kind of an exponential rise. And what is interesting about that, I mean, interesting maybe is not quite the right word, sobering, uh, is that not only do you have an exponential rise, but uh, the exponential rise is seen far more in females than in males. Far more in females than in males. All right, so um, if you go back far enough, Say 10 years ago, the amount of males who had gender dysphoria and who were transgender would have been far more than women. In fact, if you go back before that, if you go back, uh, let's say 25 years, no, you probably only have to go back 20. Uh, gender dysphoria and things like transvestitism uh, were seen as being uniquely male. There are almost no examples of females in those categories. But now, females are by far and away the most likely to, tra to, uh, to, to transition. And one of the reasons is because, um, like so many other things, gender dysphoria is socially contagious. Um, there was some work that began to be done around kind of the late 2000s. Um, there's a leader in this field by the name of Nicholas Christakis that um, I've had some light connection with. Uh, over social media, but he is, he's a leader in the field. He actually has a great book. I highly recommend it. It's a fascinating book. He's not a Christian, but uh, he's a great writer as well as a researcher. It's called Connected. Well, it's called Connected 2009. But he, what they've discovered is that things like suicide, obesity, sexual behaviors, uh, and even now mental disorders have been shown to be uh, socially contagious. Uh, you catch them in ways that are not that different then you would catch a flu. Um, by being around people, you, you tend to behave like people that you are around. Um, what is interesting, and I think I mentioned this earlier on in some of the lectures, is that when it comes to who is particularly influential and particularly influenced, um, it's women that stand out. Uh, and so you have a history, actually, of um, psychical epidemics. There's a good article that's done on that by 
somebody that I've had connection with, but their name is escaping me right now. Lisa, Lisa Marciano. You can look up this article, great article. Um, well, in some ways, she's, she's, a, um, she's a follower of Carl Jung, so uh, she's coming at things from certainly not a biblical perspective. But um, she points out that, for instance, even in the Middle East, medieval ages, there were times that there were psychical ep epidemics like, um, some of you may have heard of the, uh, the dancing um, epidemics that took place at times in, in the medieval ages. And these were uh, not uniquely female phenomenon, but they were, uh, they were certainly weighted that way considerably. Um, so we have this ratio in our time being skewing significantly towards uh, towards girls. And not only that, but we see some other things. We see certain people in vulnerable categories caught up into this. And this is one of the things that is just so sad that it ends up when you do, you know, you try to address an issue in the wrong way, you end up hurting the very people that you, you know, maybe purport to, to want to help. So for instance, uh, autistic people are far more likely, especially women, far more likely to be gender dysphoric and to, uh, to transition. Um, Adopted, adopted adolescents far more likely. Uh, in this province, there's there is some uh, preliminary data that would suggest that First Nations uh, kids that are in the foster system or in the you know in governmental care are far more likely to um, to transition. So, you know, we again with some of these things we understand that. You know, we live in a fallen world and that when you don't deal with things the way that, that God has um, told us we are to deal with things redemptively through Christ, that there's going to be problems. But we also see, as I said at the beginning, that some of this sort of glorifies the, the, our God and scripture and what he tells us. So, for instance, if, you know, if you have an understanding of the storyline of the Bible, you understand that sin spreads. That's the way... That's what happens. Sin spreads. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church, listen, you need to deal with sin in your midst because it spreads like, like leaven in a, in a loaf. Um, so, and we see this in the Old Testament as well. Um, it's, it doesn't, you know, it shouldn't surprise us that certain things in a developmental stage that God has created will, will sort of evaporate and go away. Instead, when you try to treat children as if they are adults, when they haven't even, they're not even fully formed, they don't understand yet what it means to be a man or a woman, things are going to go wrong. When it comes to outcomes for transition, it shouldn't surprise us, in fact, that for a little while, such as the makeup of man and his psychology, that, you know, if you set your heart on something that you think is going to fix you, it, you know, because we are this comprehensive uh, unit uh, and not just these different parts, uh, that, that, you know, when you have that mindset, it, it may help you for a little bit, but it's not a long-term fix because it's not really dealing with the root of the problem. Um, and so these are some of the, the things that we face, and, and I'm thankful for those who have, um, you know, kind of helped stand against some of what, what is going on in culture. And I do think there is a call to Christians to use their, their voice. However, you know, not everybody needs to be an activist, but to use our voice in speaking out against the injustices of this day, because it really is um, affecting uh, a lot of people, but but a lot of particularly vulnerable people. Um, so we we ought to um, we ought to stand in the in the marketplace and speak for justice, as it says in, in the book of Isaiah. Thank you.
Let's, uh, let's close with prayer. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lectures series on sex, gender, and the image of God. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Take care.